Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm Drew. What's shaking, everybody? Hey, hey. So this week, we're going to continue on with our uh, monthly read-through of Gundam Origin. Uh, If you've been following us uh, for the past few months, we've been working our way through one volume per month of this series, and... uh, yeah, this this month we're on volume four, I believe. Is that right, Drew? Yep, Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin, Volume Four, Jabro. Yeah, uh, you want to give them, give our good listeners, our good folks here, some uh, background details. Uh. Oh, I mean, I guess we don't have to. I mean, if they've been listening, then uh, <laughs> they should know all that stuff already, because. Okay. I wasn't prepared for that question. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, we we can just jump right into it. I mean, like I said, if if you want to know the background details, you've got the other episodes that we've done uh, up to this point, so you can check that out, and uh, that should provide you all the details. But we can we can just go from there. As always, it's written and drawn by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. I believe the translator is Melissa Tanaka, and it's published by Vertical in North America. Nice, nice. Vertical Horizon, baby. <laughs> everything you want. <laughs> it's everything you need. <laughs> oh, man. So, Tell me, Albert, do you yeah. remember where we left off at the end of Volume 3? Uh, I believe at the end of Volume 3... Actually, I don't remember specifically where we left off, but uh, in terms of the bits and pieces that I do remember, uh, Amuro has... Uh, you know, he, from what I remember, he basically decided that he was going to split from the rest of the... from White Base because... You know, he felt like they were going to take his Gundam away from him. And he was like, it's not fair. (laughs) This is outrageous. How can you be on the council and not be a master? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. He was upset. (laughs) But, uh, but circumstances drove them all back together. And, uh, you know, it, it was one of those moments where, because of the threat of Ramba Rawl and all the stuff that was happening, it it forced them to rely on each other and sort of rebuilt a, a little bit of that cohesion in their unit that was lost. But mm-hmm. but from what I remember, they they still ended up uh you know they couldn't let him go completely unscathed from it because you know. He he still kind of ran off on them. But, yeah. Yeah. But that's kind of what I remember happening last. I'm, I'm sure there was more to it. Yeah. I think the big thing that I remember from the end of Volume 3 was the battle where Rambaral and his forces assault White Base and actually manage to board it. They, uh-huh. they uh, end up killing... Some of the white base crew, just some of the unnamed crew members, I guess. You know, it's a battle, so people on, yeah, exactly. <laughs> people on both sides go down, 
and eventually there's that one scene where Rambaral turns the corner and he comes face to face with Sela and he recognizes her and calls her Artasia and recognizes her as the daughter of Zeon Zoom Dekun, who was the you know they're fighting the forces of Zeon, so Yeah. Apparently she's uh you know very she's part of royal blood. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But before they can really do anything, Ryu Jose ends up charging down the hall and he and Rambaral exchange gunfire. They both get wounded. And Rambaral, I guess I don't I never really fully understood why he did this, but instead of trying to uh keep on fighting, he ends up getting some grenades and like launching himself at the Gundam. <laughs> Even though you know the Gundam is heavily armored, he he's not a rookie soldier. He's a he's a veteran soldier, so he should have an understanding of the situation and probably should have known that a handful of grenades probably isn't gonna do much against the armor of a mobile suit. And yeah. yet he still threw himself at the Gundam, ends up getting blown apart and dying. So um that's that's pretty much the end of him there. Yeah. While the Gundam is just, you know, pretty much unscathed from the little explosion. Yeah. Yeah, that I mean, that was that was one thing I I never fully understood why he did that. Maybe he just wanted to go down swinging like you know, like a con, right? From yeah. Hell's heart I stab at thee. That's true. That yeah. that's that's really kind of the only thing that I could make sense of, like the only explanation I could make sense of as to why he did what he did. I guess he yeah. knew that he was probably not going to survive whatever wounds that he had taken from the gunshots and he didn't want to get taken prisoner or anything or, uh, and if he figured he was going to die. Yeah, you're right. I, I guess he would just go down in a fiery blaze of glory. Yeah. Like if I had to guess, that's, that's the only logic that I can make of it or mm-hmm. whatever that's worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, I guess we can kind of check into just our overall impressions of what uh, Volume 4 is about, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, before we go out, go and break it down into our chapter-by-chapter chapter specifics, we can just kind of discuss... Uh, yeah, how'd you feel about Chapter 4, Drew? I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed quite a bit. Obviously, this whole series is something I enjoy, so... I can't pinpoint specifically if there was anything about this volume that makes it superior or inferior to any of the other volumes. But overall, the series as a whole is extremely consistent. And there are definitely a lot of moments in volume four that we're going to talk about that I would want to highlight for being moments that I particularly appreciated, but I, I think kind of starting from the end of the book, there is one thing that uh, I wanted to to mention, and this isn't even part of the actual story of the origin, but 
it's the back matter, like the bonus material. And oh. <laughs> yeah, did you did you end up reading that, Albert? I, I didn't read all the back matter, but I, I skimmed it and there was there was some uh interesting stuff back there. Yeah, there was one thing at the end of the book that stood out and it wasn't necessarily the actual story of the origin, but the bonus material I thought was pretty enlightening because I forget the name of the manga creator that they invited to do this back matter, but he's a, a younger guy than Yaz, somebody who grew up watching Yaz's anime and reading his manga, presumably. But he draws a short manga where he visits Yaz in his studio and watches him create a chapter of Gundam The Origin. And I thought that was pretty insightful just to see the behind the scenes process that Yasuhiko did uh, to make this comic, you know, because even when he was making this comic, he wasn't necessarily a young man or what you would think of as a, a an artist in his in his prime years. He he must have been like around fifty something, I think, if not older. Um, and what we learn in this little bonus section is that he does everything by himself. He doesn't really have any assistance. A lot of manga creators nowadays, or even back then, had a lot of assistance, right? Like they would have people doing backgrounds and things like that, but. Yasuhiko did everything himself. The only thing that was noted is that he has an assistant do some some uh, flats, I think, or gray tones. He doesn't. He also doesn't use thumbnails. Like he doesn't create thumbnail layouts. He just puts everything on the page in pencil, and then he mm. inks everything with a single brush. Wow. Whereas yeah, whereas most most people probably create a separate you know they have they've got like a a separate page or book where they draw their thumbnails and layouts so that they know what they're going to do and then when they finally ink their their work most i think probably use a pen some kind of micron or something right mm. but but he and they use like different kinds of pens for different different uh effects but yaz just uses a single brush for everything and that's that's kind of crazy to me like i don't it is i don't draw i'm not a good artist whatsoever and i'm not necessarily the most technical but i don't i'm not aware of uh any uh, artists who who draw all their who draw their comics entirely with a brush you know yeah yeah so it, that alone it's it's kind of mind-boggling to me yeah, you would kind of expect that they would utilize as many different tools were at their disposal, right? Especially to capture all the various textures and uh, gradations and tones that they're trying to put yeah, to paper. And the different line weights. And yet, yeah. when when I'm just looking at his art, I can't even tell, you know? Like, I don't, yeah. I can't look, when I look at his art, Maybe I'm not technically artistically savvy enough to identify the type of tool that an artist used to draw a specific line, 
But I certainly did not guess that Yaz just uses a single brush yeah. to ink everything. Yeah. I think it's fair to say, like, like you, I'm not someone who is a great artist or who necessarily knows much about art, but I, I think it's a fair wager to say that that's not something that just anyone can do, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even the whole thing about him not creating thumbnail layouts before he starts drawing, that's pretty wild, too. Yeah. I mean, he, it's, 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 essentially, he just kind of has the story in his brain, and he yeah. starts He just imagines it. it and puts it to paper. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that is wild like, to me. And I, Almost zero preparation. Yeah. And I think the guy even... Uh, the, the younger manga creator who, who met him asked him uh like how he, he was able to do that and Yaz basically just shrugs and says oh it's just because i have a background in animation that's probably why I'm, i work like this but, but i'm pretty sure there are tons of animators yeah who can't do a comic the way that he makes it yeah i've seen a, a lot of bad cartooning going around and you know that's not something that comes second nature to everybody yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, so definitely the artwork. I, f- I feel like we tend to spend so much time dissecting the story. We we don't always spend the time to praise his art, but I think his artwork just looks great and his storytelling is on point. I think there were some scenes in the earlier volumes where some of the combat might have felt a little bit chaotic, mm. but I think these more recent volumes we've read it, it feels to me it doesn't feel chaotic at all like i can still follow what's going on like the choreography from panel to panel still makes logical sense to me and there certainly is uh, there certainly are moments when the emotional chaos is in full effect but i feel like there's nothing really confusing about it so overall I, I just have to say I'm continually impressed with his art and his storytelling skills. Mm. His character's facial expressions are just able to kind of tap into that, I don't know, the, that primal heart where you just can look at a character and, and know exactly what they're feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of the things that I noticed in this volume, I do feel like, especially, uh, you know, on a different note, but similarly, just as important, um, I did feel like the earlier portions of the manga were, especially that first uh, chapter, like, I, I guess there was a lot of uh action and war and you know stuff about war going on but i do feel like this chapter continues with kind of the human fallout of war Mm -hmm. uh just as uh a, a theme or a thematic uh you know exploration for the for the story and um and I do think, well, 
I guess it does make sense that over time, as as if we're to follow this story as uh, if we're to follow this story as if it is the year in the life of these characters in a year of wartime, mm-hmm. um, as as time goes by, uh, the ravages of that war just tends to take more and more of a toll on uh, the heart and the hearts and souls of these of these characters, you know? Right. And I do feel like, uh, this, this volume, you know, just does more to explore that particular, uh, subject matter. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, I was pretty captivated by that stuff and, uh, that kind of storytelling Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Hadn't, thought of that but when you once you mentioned it that that totally tracks with my reading of it too yeah yeah like i i i don't want to get into it too much right now because uh once we go into the chapter by chapter breakdown um there'll just be specific things specific moments that just highlight uh yeah you know the specific moments that highlight uh i guess what you could call his maybe his take on war or his take on the toll of war mm-hmm. rather so mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'll, I'll i'll save it for when we get to those parts but uh yeah like i i do think this was a very well done volume and uh it's it's certainly the type of uh storytelling that makes me it makes me realize that it's more than just uh, a mecha series with robots or guys in robotic suits just doing cool <laughs> stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot of the anime fandom, anime and manga fandom, who don't appreciate mecha anime or mecha stories, they, they always seem to act so surprised when they watch a good mecha anime and come to discover that oh it's not just about the giant robots you know but it's it's i don't know i guess it's an attitude that kind of amuses me a bit just as somebody who's consumed a good amount of mecha anime certainly there are some pretty mediocre ones out there that don't really do a whole lot for for me uh just because those ones are i guess focused more on the action between the or the fighting or uh, the action between the fighting robots but good mecha is like good mecha stories are like any other kind of good story you know like there's always ideas that can be explored through uh the the metaphor mm-hmm. of the gimmick and of course any story that has really well realized characters can tap into almost a limitless amount of emotional content and drama so yeah. the you know whether whatever genre it is you know we read a ton of superhero books and there's a ton of there's a ton of su- superhero comics out there that aren't really about anything other than people punching each other or using their powers right yeah yeah for sure. So 
yeah, it's kind of to me, it's kind of similar to how with a mecha story. There's a lot of there, there probably there are a lot of mecha stories that are probably not about anything besides giant robots punching each other. But mm-hmm. when you just focus on the good ones, it's it's the same thing as what makes a good superhero comic, right? Like you, yeah. When you read a good superhero comic, it's more than just about the punching and the powers. There's yeah. There's there's either something human in it in terms of the characterization or the character development, or there's something like a message or some kind of theme or idea that plays out really well using the metaphor of superheroes. And it's, yeah, very similar uh, or likewise, the same kind of thing applies to, to Mecca. Yeah. And, you know, we've got a lot of great characters with a good amount of depth in first Gundam. So it's not too surprising that, this story manages to hit people on a level that goes beyond just seeing war and explosions and giant robots shooting and fighting each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like that's a recurring theme on our podcast is just looking for greater meaning from our stories beyond just cool action scenes and, you know, fight mm-hmm. sequences and what have you. Um, part of I our mean, mission... I definitely do want those things, but I want yeah. I want all those things as the icing on top of the good storytelling. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, right? It's, I'm... I don't want the, the complete opposite either, or, or at least I don't want that all the time, you know? It's, it's about variety. It's about having some junk food but also you know having uh you know yeah i guess your vegetables too or you know give me some veggie straws man veggie straws (laughs) are almost like chips but they're vegetables so they're good for you exactly exactly that's why i I, eat them all the time (laughs) when i develop diabetes i can tell them that i've been eating my vegetables because i just had a fistful of french fries because they vegetables so potatoes man exactly (laughs) yeah but it just uh yeah i mean it's it's about having the cool uh uh, action moments and and just the cool visuals and the excitement but all that other stuff the really uh uh, substantive stuff just adds to it right like Mm -hmm. you know in a perfect world you want to be able to nourish your your that that part of you that craves excitement along with the part of you that wants to feed your soul, right? Feed your heart, feed your soul, right? Mm-hmm. So Yeah, something that stimulates your mind. All yep. of that good stuff. For sure, for sure. All right. You want to you want to do you have anything else or you want to jump into the the recaps? Yeah, let's uh, dive into it chapter by chapter. Take us away, Albert. All right. <clears throat> so we start off in section one of volume four with in the media in in the immediate aftermath of the battle against Ramba Rawls forces, White Base and her crew arrive at the Federation's Lima base for some much needed repairs and supplies and a chance to catch their collective breath. Lieutenant Matilda is at the base and the white and the white base uh 
guys are all pleased to see her. Uh, we get some domestic scenes of Kai roping Matilda in for a group photo with a bunch of the guys. Anamuro uh, helps Mirai and the war orphans fix a while. A bunch of guys, Anamuro helps Mirai and the war orphans fix a leaky faucet. Meanwhile, we get a scene of, Mc, I don't know how to pronounce this, McQueve? I've always pronounced it McQueve. But McQueve. I've heard some people call him McQueve. I don't know. I, I just, I'm just used to calling him McQueve. Okay. Uh, okay, McQueve. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, we get a scene you of... You can watch Mc... the anime to, to hear how they pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Meanwhile, we get a scene of Makuve, the commander of Zeon's Earth-based forces. He's not getting directly involved in the hunt for White Base, but a group of aces under his command. The Black Tri-Stars are intrigued. After White Base has been patched up, they continue the journey to Jaburo. But this time, they are accompanied by Matilda and three of her Medea supply ships. The chapter ends with some Zeon forces approaching White Base and the supply ships. Yeah, this was a chapter that these are the kind of chapters that I enjoy because you get to see the aftermath of of the big battle. And it's nice to have that break where you're not constantly just zipping from battle scene or action sequence to action sequence. You know, it's not just constantly shuffling you between set pieces, but you actually get a chance to see the characters in their in a calmer state, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like those are the kind of things that give you more of an opportunity to see character development and to see characterization because they're doing stuff that they do in their downtime or they're they're doing things, you know, kind of with each other because one of the, I don't know if I would call it a gimmick or what's the right word for it, but one of the one of the elements about this story so far has been the fact that a good amount of the people on white base aren't really career military soldiers, you know, like yeah. Amaro and his friends and, and a lot of them, they were just survivors from the colony when they were making their, their escape in volume one. And now they're, they have no real choice, but to help the Federation in, in the war, you know, now they're, they're living, they're essentially living on this warship and, yeah you know, living in close proximity to one another and, and having to, you know, deal with the things that people deal with when they live near each other all the time. Right. Even looking at the... Even when you're looking at them, uh, even the, uh, uh, even when you're looking at a bunch of the crew members, the I guess they're... What would the term be? Would they be like conscripts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Right. So even when you're looking at them uh, throughout the series, they're drawn in a in a particular way that makes them kind of just lovable or goofy, you know, or really mm -hmm. cartoony, I guess would be the term, right? Mm -hmm. And there's something about that style or applying that style to them in, in when I'm reading this manga and just seeing it applied to them. It makes me feel like they're not typical soldiers. It it. it highlights the point that they're not typical soldiers right because yeah. they're not you know they're not strong chinned uh you know overly like masculine type of characters they're like i said they're just kind of goofy looking and 
It reminds me of what you mentioned when we were talking about Volume 3 in that scene with Hayato when uh, Kai and Hayato and a couple other people tried to run away from White Base and Ryu yeah. Jose chased them down and basically gave them a, a tongue thrashing. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. the way I remember the you talked about how the way that Hayato was drawn in that scene just made him look more cartoony than usual. Right, but I, right. I, I was thinking he always kind of looks cartoony because he's so he's got a strange shape, you know, like he yeah, he looks the way he's drawn makes him look like he's younger than he probably actually is. Although mm-hmm. I guess being in Gundam, everybody's pretty young. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the funny thing I was going to say is it just kind of reminds me of uh, when I was reading it this time around and seeing them the way they were uh, the mm-hmm. w- and just seeing how young they look uh and and like you said they might be portrayed as younger than they actually are but it almost feels like i'm looking at like the bad news bears or something like that (laughs) because um you know if if you guys aren't familiar the bad news bears was like uh, i want to say the original movie was a 70s movie and it was uh about this team of kids uh that are they're a little league baseball team, but the thing about them is they're not your typical little league baseball team because they're not good kids. They're not uh, sweet or innocent. If anything, they're a bunch of roughnecks and they're just wild and, you know, hard a bunch to of control. them have long hair. Huh? Don't a bunch of them have kind of long hair? A bunch of them have long hair, but it's not even entirely about their appearance either because they're just in terms of their behavior they're just not you know they're not cultured they're not uh uh well behaved uh they're even the the coach of the team is just a grumpy old drunk basically (laughs) you know exactly who you want leading a bunch of little kids yeah yeah (laughs) but but that's the thing about this uh um this crew is like it's it's just such a hodgepodge of of characters that you have your your military your your you know your professional military uh, military guys but then mm-hmm. you know you have someone like lieutenant bright who's not necessarily a seasoned soldier although he's trying to be and yeah. then you have s- someone like sayla who's just you know a cold-blooded killer or, you know, just very accomplished and capable uh, soldier, right? And then you have guys like Kai and all those other characters that are just kind of goofy, you know? Mm-hmm. But this is not a typical military unit by any means. And Yeah, not at all. It's It's kind of a found family between this mixture of federation soldiers and the people that they picked up on on the yeah. from the colony yeah i mean on some level it makes it almost easier to view them as an entry point or a, a point of view to 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 follow within this story right mhm cuz if they were just another perfect crew of characters it would just be one ship in a fleet of thousands, you know? Yeah. That's so true. It does make them a little more unique and a little more interesting. Mm-hmm. I yeah. did want to go back to uh, your brief comment about Sayla being 
super competent or even like this cold-blooded killer because i don't know if you uh picked up on this back in volume one but she also wasn't actually a federation soldier so she's also one of the conscripts or one of the civilians that were picked up but the like just she's just it's kind of interesting when you think about it naturally yeah like sela and mirai they're they were both civilians who ended up joining white base but it just seems like the two women are the ones who are like the best at being soldiers compared to the other people, you know, like everybody else has moments where they panic or freak out, but it just seems like Sela and Mirai are always able to be that voice of reason, or they're just super competent at what they do, whether it's uh, piloting the ship or anything else. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of cool to see that. Yeah. Even bright. Who's, you know, the leader of, this ship he's uh he's there are times where he just comes off as uncertain or not confident Mm -hmm. you know even Mm -hmm. though he's he's the commanding officer but he he pushes on on through in spite of that but you look at sayla and she's just cool calm and in control like all the time yeah 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 and in light of the revelation at the end of volume three it it does kind of make you think about what's really going on yeah and yeah i mean it's it's i I don't want to spoil anything for you just because i know you haven't read everything or watched all the the entire series or anything but that that's definitely reading it like for me rereading this comic it it jumps out at me more just because um because of her competence and how it, it kind of con it's contrasted with the other civilian crew members who ended up joining white base because yeah. yeah just for whatever reason she's just head and shoulders more competent at least it seems like it uh compared to everybody else yeah i like that you don't see moments where or sailo or mirai freak out about anything like they they're not the ones who tried to desert white base and run away <laughs> when right, things got right. pretty hairy or anything right Right. Yeah. I wanted to go back to a couple of scenes that you mentioned earlier in this uh, in this section, but mm-hmm. there's there's this moment where Matilda shows up, and it, it's it's yeah, it, it's it's one of those in between moments that you were talking about. But all the guys are just all about her because they just think she's hot, right? And everybody's just trying, like, fighting over, uh, like, just, you know, falling over each other just to take a picture with her. And mm-hmm. I thought that was, I mean, that's a scene where that just highlights or, or um, shows how, I guess, how goofy they are on some level i mean it's a fun little scene but it's just yeah the type of thing that reminds you that these aren't soldiers they're not uh your typical soldiers they're just it's it's endearing on some level you know they're they're just kind of guys being guys even though they're in the in the middle of this like life and death situation they can still find it in, in themselves to be uh you know just kind of fun dudes yeah absolutely and it it does kind of remind you that they are supposed to be teenagers also yeah it's it 
It reminds me of this uh, podcast that I was listening to, and uh, the guy was talking about movies, and I forget which movie it was exactly that he was talking about, but he made the point of uh, how there are certain like dramatic movies that he doesn't really uh, buy into because a lot of the times in in these you know sort of end of the world types of stories, everyone's playing it really serious, right? Like yeah. Like a Zack Snyder or something like that, right? And <laughs> and the point that he was making was, he, in his personal opinion, um, you know, even even in the heat of battle, in the heat of war, like people find ways to find levity in it all, you know. That's mm-hmm. that to him that was more more realistic than just guys flexing about how. You know, they're going to, you know, from hell's heart, they're going to stab at them or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. like they're Mm going to just, you know, destroy them completely and utterly or whatever. Like the, the, it just, yeah, the point that he was making was that if these stories are to mirror real life, there, there needs to be moments of lightness and comedy because that's how real people act under 10 situations you know sometimes yeah that's true that's true i also appreciate how that scene it wasn't done in a in a creepy way like it was like you said (laughs) more endearing you know like there wasn't anything like i could easily see some a scene like that come off as there's a lot of appropriate or gross yeah Yeah, and there's a lot of anime out there that that it does get pretty pervy yeah but yeah this scene fortunately wasn't like that it was it was pretty wholesome you know it's just a bunch of you know young men or teenage older teenage boys they're just crushing on her yeah they're exactly (laughs) yeah yeah and then um you know to add to that there's you know so this is all of them getting together but then there's a little scene at the end where um i think amuro has some sort of exchange with her and you know amuro early on in the previous volumes had already we've already established that Amaro's kind of had you know he's got a small little thing for her right he's pretty attracted to her yeah totally and later on he finds a note in his pocket from her i i think right am i remembering that right i believe you're remembering it correctly yeah and it's just a moment where he finds this note in his pocket from her and it's it's this sequence of panels where he's looking at it and it's there's there isn't a single thing being said but you're just watching his reaction to finding this note and then Wait, on the was next it, page was it a note or was it the photo oh it might have been a photo yeah yeah it might have been a photo i remember the scene where he like the scene after he helps mirai and the little kids fix their yeah. uh, faucet yeah, so yeah, they yeah. can take a shower. He checks yeah. his pocket and he realizes that the photo is still dry. Yeah. And he is just so happy with that, you know? Yeah. That <laughs> one just page gonna... where he's just like, wahoo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's super wholesome and just kind of childish at the same time. Yeah, yeah. There's something quite amusing about it because yeah. it, it's weird to think about how this guy who has already been become this hardened soldier and, and not only killed people in his mobile suit but has actually <laughs> killed an enemy soldier with a handgun 
you know, he yeah. still gets excited and he can dance in the hallway when he realizes he has a picture with a pretty woman. Yeah. Well, it's kind of that thing of, you know, I don't want to bring it too far down to earth or make it too bleak or anything, but it, it's that thing where when you look at stuff like child soldiers and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, after, after these conflicts when these children have to be you know re uh, i don't know what the term is not re-civilized but like reintroduced back into like they've got to reacclimatize themselves yeah exactly to 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 not being in war or in combat right mm-hmm. like given the opportunity like those instincts to be children are still there you know um it's yeah it's it's rough especially in under like real life circumstances when you hear stories about these kids that just went through these horrible things but again like when when the opportunity is there when uh when the circumstances have improved substantially and even though they've been through some horrible stuff and and i'm not saying that there aren't kids that aren't just like super emotionally messed up by the traumas that they experience but in a lot of cases you know there there's really no other choice but to find ways to keep on living your life right and Mm -hmm. given the opportunity these kids it's been seen where these kids can still like access that that kind of innocence you know in -hmm. spite of the horrible things that they've seen. So yeah, there's, there's something, uh, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a silly little moment, but it's a I nice think, silly little moment. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I do think that there's an understanding there, you know, of, of people of under, under similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention was that that shower scene when Amro helps fix the that busted faucet. Uh-huh. Like that that was a scene also that I, I think it could have been played off as a little bit creepy, but it 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 wasn't really, you know. Like it was it it they could have it could have been like a fan servicey type of scene where you, you get to see Mirai naked or whatever, but yeah. But uh you know he avoided uh Yaz avoided drawing it in a creepy way so it just felt like Amro was helping family members you know like they yeah. were they needed someone who had the know-how to fix some plumbing and he was able to do it for them yeah it's 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 almost that difference between like nudity and sexuality i guess right yeah where uh, there, for the purposes of storytelling, there's a way to draw the naked body that is tasteful and that isn't about sexualizing them, right? Yeah. Where it's like, okay, this this is the human body. It is what it is, and that's it's understandable that uh, for a certain scene that this is what you would see, right? 
Yeah, um, and I think she even put on a towel before she, you know, yeah, yeah, talked to Amaro. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's just a good reminder that uh, you know, uh, like I get it. There, there, it's like you were saying. Like, there's a lot of manga artists or anime that seems to accentuate the the sexuality of the scene right mm-hmm. but there's also ways to portray it where yeah where where it's more innocent and where it makes complete sense to show uh, a body part without it being this completely scandalous thing you know mm-hmm. yeah so far i think the most fan service stuff that we've seen was back in volume two when Shar had a shower scene <laughs> <laughs> we saw his we saw his butt man yeah 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 <laughs> that's true think, that's true yeah you think that's funny albert i do i do it's just interesting right like in another if it, this was any other anime matildo would just have like big old gazooms you know just popping out of <laughs> yeah. her popping out of her uh, situation and it's like She's not. She's not built that way, you know? Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. So, hey, good on Yaz, man. He's, he's, uh, he he was ahead of his time on this stuff. <laughs> totally, man. He, he designed the characters back in the day, so they've, uh, aged very well. Yeah. He could have very easily been just a creepy old perv <laughs> because <laughs> so much of, uh, the market has gone that way, but he did it. Yeah, I respect him. Yeah, yeah. You want to uh, move on to section two, Albert? Let's go. After a brief skirmish, white base lands in Cusco, which has been designated a neutral zone. While some of the white base crew explore the city, they encounter some Zeon soldiers. Words are exchanged, and Hayato uses his judo skills to teach these older men a lesson. However, the black tri-stars arrive and end the conflict. The incident leaves Amuro and the others a bit uneasy. Ryu tells the tells a story about black uh Ryu tells a story about the black tristars that establishes their reputation. As the younger cadets listen to the story about the Battle of Loom, the first battle that establishes the superiority of mobile suits, Kai proceeds to mock Lieutenant General Revel Revel, who was largely responsible for the humiliating loss at Loom and was captured by Xeon is hailed as a hero and promoted because of a speech he gave. Meanwhile, Hum- Haman and the remnants of Rambo Rao's forces have been regrouping for one more assault upon the white base. Uh, upon the white base, Harmon, being Rambo Rao's partner, swears. Harmon. Haman. Sorry. Yeah. Hamon. Hamon, being Rambo Rao's partner, swears revenge on his behalf. Haman meets with Lieutenant Junior Grade Tachi who provides intelligence on some armaments as well as their as as well as his allegiance together they decide to take on the mission of getting revenge on white base as a personal vendetta without any care for their homeland we see in their conversation that they have resentment for the nation of Zeon, that it would sacrifice or sacrifice men like rambo Rawl. this moment of candidness mirrors the earlier conversation about Lieutenant Revel, Rev, Re, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Revel? Rev, Revel. Okay. 
I just keep seeing <laughs> evil, and I just keep thinking revil. <laughs> revil. <laughs> that's how I remembered it when I was writing. Revil can evil. Lieutenant Revil revealing that for both sides, the people at the bottom who actually have to fight the wars have resentment towards their leaders for their incompetence and their overinflated sense of self when it is the average soldier and the civilians who are the ones who pay with their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a good point. I think it is interesting to see how the story provides that point of view from both the Federation and Zeon. Yeah. Because I feel like ordinarily we would probably be more likely to see that from the quote-unquote the bad guy side, right? Yeah. But to have our heroes even badmouth their military leadership behind their backs, you know, it it's a, a humanizing moment. It feels It feels realistic, believable, and logical, especially the way that Kai describes or the way that Kai pictures the situation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's um yeah, I just thought the juxtaposition of these two moments was it was an interesting thing to put these two scenes in the same like chapter, right? Mm-hmm. So you have on the one hand, you have uh Hamon who who like I like I mentioned earlier, she she, you know, she loved Ramba Rall. Like, mm-hmm. there's even one point in the in the manga where she says he was her life, and mm-hmm. and what ends up happening is, uh, you know, Zeon takes him for granted, essentially just sacrificing him, sending him into combat to be just cannon fodder, you know, and all he wanted was to be able to finish the war and to go home and live in peace. Mm-hmm. And and there's like this bitterness that comes from the fact that he died for these people, you know? Yeah. These yeah. people that cared not 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 a not a iota for him, you know, beyond what they could what he could provide for them. Exactly. And and then, you know, you have that moment where uh they're talking about this uh lieutenant was it Lieutenant General Reville? Yeah, I think he was a general. At least I'm. At least by the time the story happens, he's a general. I forget what his rank was at the Battle of Loom. Yeah, but that whole story was about how he was uh, ambushed when Zeon first uh, attacked, and like it was just an utterly humiliating defeat to the point where he was captured, and they had to go and have this special mission to go retrieve him you know Mm -hmm. and up to that point he was just this miserable failure but he gives this stirring speech that you know that inspires everyone and all of a sudden this guy's a hero they (laughs) they promote him and and you know just putting these two scenes side by side just shows how neither of them you know just the average person on both both sides they don't have too much respect, if any, for the people that are leading them, the people that are, for all intents and purposes, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, uh, driving the war into a deeper and deeper state of conflict, 
you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that tracks w- with one of the main themes of Gundam, at least from director Yoshiki Tomino's perspective. I, I would say that a, a recurring theme throughout first Gundam, as well as most of his, if not all of his other works that I've seen, one of the themes that I always see is this rejection of the older generation. Like a lot of his stories, Tomino's stories, end up being about how the youth or the young people are the ones who need to forge the way to the future, even if they can barely believe that it's possible because the current generation or the older generation of people have messed things up so bad. Yeah. And it feels like this is a reflection of that idea, just how the the people in authority have left things in this bad place. And Uh now things are looking pretty grim all around or hopeless even. But only these young people have the ability or the willpower to forge a better future for humanity. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, and, and like I, I'd probably need to go back and look at, um, like how the timetable syncs up, but it reminds me of something like Akira, you know, where mm-hmm. so much of that was centered around how so much of, I guess, Japanese culture had look to uh, established power structures for for leadership right that belief Mm -hmm. that oh the the older and wiser these people are the more uh i guess stability and wisdom they bring to a a given situation and in 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 gundam origin and in akira what ends up happening is you know after decades uh or even generations of of that just seeing where the world has gone as a result of just obeying those orders like you end up coming you end up in this place where yeah the younger generation ends up being either delinquent or just rebellious towards these institutions and these ideas because Mm -hmm. What what has what have these things brought them, right? Yeah. It's it's yeah. That's I, a good I, connection. I I hadn't thought about Akira in that context with with Gundam, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I don't remember exactly when the when when Akira came out, but I I believe it was like the early eighties, probably like around 82 or something so Uh it was definitely after first gundam originally aired as an anime right right yeah it just i mean i don't know if they would be considered contemporaries but it's just interesting to think that if this was kind of in the zeitgeist of the time because i i again i'm not some sort of expert but like i do think that there was a lot of stuff going on in that era where there was this feeling of dissatisfaction with just what their world had become, you know? Um, Yeah. Like, I do remember that there was a lot of uh, news articles about how, you know, Japanese youths had become delinquents, but 
you know, from another perspective, a lot of that delinquency, you know, maybe it's not excusable, you know, like I'm not a fan of gangs or hoodlums or whatever, but you're you know, not a fan of those things. <laughs> uh, maybe the, the James Dean kind of hoodlum where, <laughs> where they ride around on motorcycles and read comic books. <laughs> but, but there is this, you know, this feeling or this sense that that delinquency does stem from their dissatisfaction and their, uh, you know, unhappiness with the failures of the older generations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's 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 interesting to think on that or to to consider it in that context. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, if we were to like try and extrapolate why this seems to be a common theme in a lot of the anime we've watched or the manga that we've read, it, I could imagine tracing a line all the way back to World War II. Yeah, no, you know, exactly. exactly. How, how at that time, everybody just thought the emperor was the god of Japan, right? And yeah didn't think to question him and yet look what ended up happening yeah so and they've been living with the consequences of those attitudes yeah for exactly decades if not centuries exactly. you know yeah even even something more recent like the when the tsunami happened and the disaster at fukushima occurred with the nuclear uh reactors yeah the i remember reading stories about how uh people were were uh, displeased with the bureaucracy and how it slowed down the emergency response of everything yeah yeah right and and I, i've and even though i haven't seen this movie i know that hideyaki ano's shin godzilla is a movie that's a critique about slow moving bureaucracy in the face of emergency situations so like just that idea of of how there are these leaders or authority figures who have these high positions and a lot of responsibility often aren't able to live up to the responsibility in terms of helping the common person you know yeah yeah i mean I think it's fair to say that a lot of those attitudes are beginning to show up in this country too. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's just, yeah. When, if we just look at it, like people who have power don't care or make the best use of that power to help common people. I, that's got to be true in every country yeah know? it's almost a that's, universal thing that's just a product of being a sinful human being <laughs> <laughs> nothing nothing you can really do about that it's just it's just life yeah yeah wow that got existentially bleak <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't expecting to feel that way but here we are <laughs> hey, hey last week we read a book about putin and that was pretty bleak in and of itself. This week we're engaging in some escapism, man. This is fiction. Yeah. Yeah. We're taking our minds on adventures right now. 
even our escapism is bleak. <laughs> <laughs> that is rough. Yeah. Um, were there any other scenes you wanted to mention in uh, section two? Not a scene exactly, but I did think that it was interesting to see that they that the white base lands in Cuzco. It I don't really know anything about uh, my South American geography, but I like the f- idea of there being like these neutral zones where uh, people from both sides can you know enter. But there's just this understanding that there's to be no... The war doesn't exist there. Exactly, exactly. And and yeah. just the fact that this story has been sprinkling names of real locations throughout. Like when they were in Volume 2, they were in, in L.A. And we saw Hollywood and all that when where Garma was living. Um, you know, it, it definitely adds to this sense of world building and uh-huh. nothing is really like they we don't need to get explanations about the history of of all these places and what they've been what people have been uh going through in terms of uh you know like the history of those cities or what the citizens have been going through throughout the the one year war or anything like that but it to me it's it's just nice to see that there's a sense of world building to the Gundam universe you know like it makes it makes this story feel like it's rooted in something that is more tangible and it adds to the immersiveness of the story to know that there are these they're they're traveling through real geography here yeah. I like that yeah. yeah just a small simple little thing and I will say that um you know the scenes of them at in uh what's what's the place called again Cusco 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 um you know I could be it, mispronouncing it <laughs> you know I'm McQui I'm, I'm an American man I don't know how to pronounce <laughs> anything foreign so. McQui Cusco <laughs> <laughs> no but I was gonna say I mean it was just another uh one of those moments that's just kind of fun to observe from uh the story from a story with like so many bleak and uh you know drama intense moments just just watching them you know walk around a fair and you know yeah being taking it all in young young again you know just yeah actually that reminds me wasn't wasn't there a a little uh scene where hayato's and his the other people are walking around and then hayato's like this reminds me just like japan (laughs) and then they're like how would you know? You've never been there. You were born in space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and he like retorts back. He says something to the effect of, I forget what he, exactly he says, but it's basically, can you just let me have this? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of just like, I just wanted to pretend for just a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty. That was a scene that did make me chuckle. It was it was funny, man. Yeah. Yeah. He's the guy with with one of the most Japanese sounding names and I'm pretty sure that city didn't look very much yeah. like Japan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is funny when you, uh, when you think about that, when you take yeah. in the, the extra information. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and the fact that they mentioned that he was born in space, it it also gives you uh, an interesting reminder about like this entire war, about how and, and how Zeon felt that the Federation, or at least their argument is that the Federation is is oppressing them. I guess it all stems from how the Federation forced these people to migrate into space in the first place. I don't know if it's explicitly ever like exposited or spelled out, but I remember there was a brief piece of dialogue in one of the earlier volumes when when the white base lands on Earth and Kai is, is walking around on, on the ground while people are, I think Sela and Mirai are sunbathing or something, and he says something like, if you have a house on Earth, you're one of the elite, right? Like basically implying that, like, if you just live on Earth, you're you're a member of the elite class, and mm-hmm. all the all the dregs of of humanity were forced to move into space. So th- there's something. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's super sinister, but it's definitely something that makes you think more about the the history or the lore and context of the Gundam world. Yeah. Yeah. Because the some of the scenes that we've seen of people on Earth, it doesn't look like they're living very well either, you know? I mean, especially the common people. Yeah. Like we saw that scene uh It's in, not a utopia. Was, it's not a utopia. Definitely yeah. not a utopia. They didn't kick people off Earth to usher in a new utopia it seemed yeah. like they just kicked people <laughs> off earth and uh you know things are as bad as they always have been <laughs> yeah 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 like i just think back to that that uh that section of the story when amro finds his mother and he goes back to his, the, the town where he grew up and where his mother uh where he thought his mother was staying and that town was just yeah like it was like yeah. a village yeah <laughs> you know yeah yeah just a village and overrun by enemy soldiers. It it doesn't seem like living on Earth is a great thing either. Yeah. It's yeah. like whether you live on space, live in space or live on Earth, if you're living in a world with mobile suits, you're probably uh better off not living at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Things are just too dangerous. Yeah. I also wanted to go over the scene with Hayato where where he beats up all these uh Zeon soldiers. Yeah, they're all That's, older and bigger than him. Yeah, it's a pretty funny scene, but it's, you know, again, this is like a neutral, you know, Kozko being this neutral place, they just kind of coexist around each other without having active hostilities. But then there's this one moment where these soldiers are, you know, talking crap about, um, you know, about mm-hmm. uh, white base and about, uh, you know, basically saying what kind of military unit has like women and children with them. And they just, you know, mock them. And yeah. at that point, Hayato just goes and, you know, and, and says. He does his judo thing. Yeah, he, he challenges them to a fight. It's a pretty funny scene of him just flipping all these big guys and putting them in locks and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty enjoyable. That's some pretty entertaining artwork right there. Yeah, yeah. Just thought that was worth mentioning. 
Want to mm-hmm. move on to the next section? Yeah. All right. In section three, White Base proceeds on its way to Jaburo after making repairs. En route, White Base is engaged by a fat uncle, which is a type of vessel which, uh, while they are separating from the decoy fleet, White Base is forced to touch down and to take cover, at which point they are attacked by Haman and Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Tachi. In the ensuing battle, Tachi damages Kai's unit but loses his life. The fat uncle is sent on a collision course with White Base and is packed with explosives. All the available Gundam hold back the fat uncle while Haman's private vessel holds them at gunpoint from her person. Uh, yeah, holds them at gunpoint. In the chaos, Ryu slips away to perform some reconnaissance, and upon returning to uh, White Base, he unknowingly collides with Haman, killing them both. Uh, without the threat of Haman firing on them, the Gundams are able to veer the fat uncle away from White Base, saving everyone. So it's a pretty action-oriented scene uh, that that we see in uh, Section 3. Um, like I said, what ends up happening is uh, they, they develop a plan to get to Jaburo, but... The plan uh, requires that they have this decoy fleet and that white place slips away while all that is happening, uh, you know, taking an alternative route. But while they slip away, uh, they they come under attack from uh, Haman. And this is kind of her final battle, mm-hmm. uh, putting putting a putting a period on that on that portion of the story, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a another scene where we get a death of someone that that's more than just a nameless, faceless soldier, but yeah. this is a you know a genuine character here. I, I when when Ryu crashes into Hamon, was that uh? unknowingly or I, th- I thought that was intentional well that's i don't know maybe i was reading it wrong because it, it just felt like there was a lot of chaos going on and he just kind of comes in and he he crashes into her but he might have been doing it on purpose too i i wasn't like I, yeah i wasn't really too sure on that on that note Oh okay, yeah, yeah. I I uh, feel like in in the anime, I think it was intentional. Okay, like yeah. I said, I I might have just been reading it wrong because it just felt like, yeah, it, it, I don't think he really said anything, so it just felt like. Well, I you guess wanted it makes you me... wanted him to give us a, a speech before he went out. Uh. I don't know. Maybe I, I I don't necessarily want him to give a speech, but you know what what it was. I'm looking at the scene right now, and just the expression on his face. There is something that makes it look like he was startled to see her when he crashed into her. <laughs> okay. You know, <laughs> but looking at that his facial expression again, I guess you, it, there's also a way to read it where he's, you know, doing his angry face as he crashes into her. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. again, I could have just been reading it wrong, but 
it, it just felt like he just turned a corner and, uh, you know, there she was. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, not a way I want to go out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's 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 definitely more. It's definitely more heroic when he does it on purpose, right? When when he does it to save the rest of them. So that's yeah. probably the more accurate way to read it. Yeah, I I have to rewatch the anime. Yeah, but I my memory of it, and I, admittedly, this could be. Uh, I could be misremembering it, but in my memory, at least, I recall that Hamon was in that whatever the vehicle that she was in, that flying thing with the big cannon, mm. uh, and she was basically blasting Amro in the back with it. And at the time, in the anime, I think he had his the shield on his back, so that that took one hit. But it looked like if she shot again, she would really, if not kill him mess him up pretty bad and ryu ends up uh crashing into her because the recon ship he was on didn't have any actual weapons and he was just trying to protect amuro yeah yeah it i i think this is a case where they just wanted the art to do the storytelling so i i you know again i might have just read a few of the things differently than they had intended Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know that's that's just kind of the way it is sometimes when when you trust the reader to to get whatever it is you're trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I'm looking at it here, and um, yeah, the the ship is just kind of hovering behind them, and it's it's literally pointing its barrel at the back of Amuro's Gundam, but it's just kind of hovering there and not you know. They're they're having she's this, saying some stuff at him. Yeah, before they're she having this him. exchange of words, right? And she's just yeah. letting him know that basically, you know, whatever he does, she can. It just takes one blast, and she can fire through right through, you know, one of the most vital parts of the Gundam, and that'll be that. Mm-hmm. But she's just having her moment, you know, just reveling in her revenge. And she, doesn't she say a line? towards Amro about how I forget exactly what the quote is but isn't it something along the lines of you're just a kid who who doesn't know any better and I I can't believe that you robbed me of my time with Ramba or something something like that I forget exactly uh let's see okay so here's uh, I'll I'll read the next couple of pages but the gallop is fully loaded with explosive if it rams the trojan horse both will be blown to bits you see your arms are tied you can't let go, so die, frozen in that pose. No matter how thick your armor is, if I shoot right through your power systems at this range, you don't stand a chance. Isn't that so? And then uh, she goes, he's, he says, why are you doing this? It's a war. It's not like I murdered anyone. And she goes, you have no idea, do you? You only lived for 15 years or so. Mm. The life Rawl and I had was so much richer than yours. And the one who ended it, kid, was you. And then that's that's the line I was thinking of. Yeah. And then here's the the thing I think that might have made me think that it was just a matter of him of uh, Ryu just happening on them. But suddenly you see his ship coming and it's flying in, and he goes, "White base, this is court, court, 
court martial material Ryu Jose now returning to base. Recon flight complete. No signs up to up to north of Machu Picchu of and then you see his facial expression as he sees uh her vessel. And I guess he hears her say, This is the end for you. I really did like you, kid. And well, yeah, I I guess rereading this now, he he comes in just in the nick of time to see what's going on and Kamikazes her. Yeah, it, like they don't really, cause, cause you were saying in the anime she was shooting him in the back, yeah. And he comes out and he, um, there's there's that whole thing about how the ship doesn't have weapons, so he has no other choice but to ram her, right? Uh huh. But they don't really mention you know all that other stuff here, so. Right. Yeah. Anyways, but sounds like he was still aware of. The danger Amro was in. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Either way, it, it's a minor difference between the anime and the manga, but mm-hmm. it still it still works, I think. There's, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, I, it's I still think it's a a powerful moment both for Hamon and for Ryu. Yeah. I actually like that line where where Hamon says, "You've only lived for 15 years, but the yeah. life Ramba and High was so much fuller or richer than." whatever you could have known like yeah. that there's just something hmm, like there's a there's a bitterness to that mm. and just this cold fury that it touches me man yeah i don't know why but that's that's the kind of that's the kind of throwaway line of dialogue that just sticks with me well after i put the book down yeah and there is something to hearing that line where she's, where she just says, "I really did like you." I, I mean, it took me back to the previous book where mm-hmm. they met in that bar, and she, I, I believe she was there, and she was even yeah, she was. kind of compassionate to him, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I guess that's it. Just heightens the tragedy of it all, you know? Yeah, it it kind of feels like. These were people who, if there wasn't a war, they there's no reason for them to be at odds with one another. Yeah, but that's kind of the thing about wars, right? Is often the case is there are people killing other people who otherwise wouldn't have any reason to kill them. Yeah. And that's just kind of the messed up thing about war. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to section four. Mm -hmm. The crew mourns and lament Ryu's death. They share their pains with one another, each each claiming credit for his demise. But Amuro loses it and lashes out angrily at everyone. This is just another sign of Amuro dealing with the trauma of being thrust into the role of a soldier, despite the fact that he is he is not just not only a civilian but a teenager at that. After the battle with Hamon. Whiteface is licking their wounds and making repairs. Miss Matilda meets back up uh, with Whiteface and Amuro, bringing with her materials and resources to help with repairs. While preparations are being made, Amuro and Miss Matilda share uh, share a moment with one another, where Amuro learns about her and her motivations, increasing his his feelings towards her. 
In an instance, the Black Tri-Stars attack and White Base has to mobilize their mobile suits to defend themselves. The battle rages with Amaro being outnumbered, and as things begin to look bad, the, the Medea Transport Corps ship enters the fray, providing enough assistance for Amaro to get free. But as the Medea is distracting one of the Black Tri-Stars, a lethal blow struck, destroying the ship. In that moment, Amaro sees that Miss Matilda has gone down with the ship, and he, in a rage, utterly destroys Mash, one of the Black Tri-Stars. The remaining uh, Black Tri-Stars escape to regroup, and White Base is left again, mourning another loss. Yeah, this was another heavy installment yeah. of the story. And it's it, so soon after losing Ryu. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I I do appreciate, first of all, how we had that scene where the crew was lamenting Ryu's death. Yeah. Because it, it really did feel like in the first three and a half volumes of the manga that he was one of the guys that was trying to pull everyone together, you know? Like, he yeah. wasn't he wasn't necessarily a high-ranking officer or anything, but he got on really well with the civilians who were forced to start piloting the mobile suits, like yeah. Hayato and Kai and Amuro. Like, he he definitely, like, looked out for them, and and he, he was, was the one... the glue. Yeah, yeah. He, and, and he was the guy who was an enlisted soldier. You know, he wasn't a civilian that got caught up in it, but he yeah. was a soldier that that knew how to follow orders and was trained and everything. And he tried to help these, uh, these kids be soldiers. Exactly. Exactly. So it it makes sense that his death would, would hit them hard, especially Hayato, because there was that other scene earlier volume where we see them training and, and Ryu even calls him his judo master or his sensei. Right. Right. Which is funny because Ryu's just this massive mountain of a guy compared to Hayato. <laughs> yeah. It's it's an interesting scene watching them all just, you know, bawling their eyes out and, in, you know, in pain. Because um, it's interesting to me mm-hmm. watching Amuro get mad at these guys. Because in one of the earlier volumes, right after a battle... He he just kind of shrugs away into himself, and from what I remember, he was just he was just kind of just hiding in his room, you know, mm-hmm, trying mm-hmm. to uh, sort his stuff out so that he could function again. And like I don't know if this is a sign of him like learning to deal with it better. It probably <laughs> isn't, you know. But but it, do you think it's, it's better to hide in your room? Or to lash out at your comrades. Exactly, right? That's the thing. He's <laughs> it's it's a weird evolution. I don't know if it's a sideways evolution or what, but it's it's just he's gone from being uh this this really like I guess shell shocked individual to cause cause because there is something about what he says to them that does feel, I guess, soldierly in in the in the sense that he's kind of telling them like, you know, what are you what are you talking about? Why are you like feeling blaming sorry for yourself. yourselves? Yeah, huh? yeah, like, yeah. Why are you blaming yourself? Yeah, this is war. This is what we do, right? Mm-hmm. But 
So I mean, he's but, he's not exactly wrong, but it it just feels like he could have looked for a more opportune moment to share that message than the you know than the very moment when everybody's in mourning. He yeah, like, there's a way to yeah. say something like that gracefully to somebody, yeah. maybe even it, in private. As it opposed certainly to didn't just, have any tact. <laughs> yeah, there was absolutely no tact whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, he yeah. starts a he starts a fist fight. Yeah, yeah. Well, but the interesting thing is, and I mean, this is something that happens in one of the later chapters, but I think it's relevant. Mm -hmm. At one point later on, he... Wait, okay, so in this scene where uh, Miss Matilda dies, at one point later on, he he takes the guilt upon himself when, when he's discussing Miss Matilda's death, you know? So... Yeah, I don't even know if he really believes this, what he's saying right now, or, or if it's just kind of his means of coping with, with the fact that Ryu has died. You know? Right. Yeah, I think, I think you make a good point there, because there, there is probably a reasonable chance that he's coping and he doesn't actually believe what he's saying, or maybe he believes that that those other that Hayato and those other crewmates are not responsible because he feels like he's the one who's responsible. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's why he's mad that these, that his friends are the ones who are trying to take on this blame that he yeah. thinks belongs to him. Well, but that's the other thing about that I think is a pretty well done and accurate representation of war. Granted, I've never been in war, but it's the idea of like survivor's guilt where, mm -hmm. you know, you being in this, you being in under these circumstances where you're fighting for your life. And after the fact, having that pressure of knowing of wondering or asking yourself why you survived when other people didn't people that you liked people that, maybe you even believe uh deserve to live more than you you know yeah yeah that is true yeah um yeah but it's and, and another thing that i thought was a pretty accurate representation of war is just how up to this point we we have had a lot of people die over the course of this series you're and, and mm -hmm. it's like you mentioned earlier there are a bunch of just nameless people right mm -hmm. but to have these characters with names and uh distinct features die in such a short span from one another right that that feels like that's a real thing that happens in battle you know? yeah mm -hmm. um because it's not like you get it's not like in real war you get a timeout where you, you get to be like, okay, uh, let's just hold off so that no one dies until I'm ready for another person to die. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's not, that just sounds ridiculous when you say Yeah. <laughs> it's not how it works at all, right? Like, stuff just happens and people, we don't have any control over it whatsoever. And it's just, yeah, right? So... Mm -hmm. They lose someone that they have 
uh, a lot of care for someone that's close to them, right? Mm-hmm. And shortly after, what ends up happening, they just end up losing another one. And yeah, they really don't they don't really get a say in that. They don't have any control over that. And it's just something that happens. And that feels true to life. Yeah, the losses just keep piling up and they don't really have a chance yeah. to breathe. Yeah. And Miss Matilda's death, that that was something that it stung, you know, because in that previous moment that we described earlier, just watching Amaro, you know, gleefully jump at the idea of having this picture with mm-hmm. this woman only to have her die, only for him to be there when she dies. That's, uh, that's, that hurts. You know, yeah. I, I hurt for him. Yeah, it's it's pretty sad, man. It's It's a painful moment. Yeah. One of the other things uh, that stood out to me here, going back to the scene where they, where the crew is, uh, is just wailing over Ryu's death. I do think that one thing I appreciated about it was how Kai is handled throughout not only the series, but like this scene is a good example because so often it seems like Kai is played as comic relief, uh-huh. but he also makes some scathing points, right? Like you mentioned what he was saying when he made that critique of General Reville, how how this general screwed up at the Battle of Loom, got a bunch of their soldier Federation soldiers killed, lost a bunch of ships, but he somehow survived and got captured as a POW, but he escaped and returned back to Earth and got a promotion. Yeah. And yeah. and like the the way that Kai says that it he makes it come off like just this brutally sarcastic or bitter comment, but there's also it's like the court jester, right? Like there's a bit of truth in in the joke. And yeah. you know that's just one example of of a scene with with Kai where he's kind of played off as some kind of like sarcastic wise guy, um, and like some of the just some of the faces that. Yaz draws on him like sometimes Yaz gives him really cartoony faces and and facial expressions to make him look a little funnier. And yet, despite his outwardly cynical comments, I feel like there are quite a few moments here and there where you can see that Kai genuinely actually does care about his friends, too. Mm. And I feel like the aftermath of Ryu's death, when we have Amuro and Hayato fist fighting just out of like grief and, and anger and frustration, Kai is the one who acts as the voice of reason there, you know? He's the one who pulls Amuro off and, and like tries to calm him down, being logical about it and, and reminding him that even though the little war orphan kids are, are there and Amuro's starting to freak him out. So it, it's interesting to me to see how Kai is played off you know like just the the many facets of kai i guess you could say where he's he's not just this one-dimensional background character but to see just these little moments pile up they really add a great deal of characterization to to this guy even though we haven't really seen a story that focuses in on on him specifically yeah i do feel like 
all these little moments we get of him in these first four volumes paint a pretty interesting portrait of a fascinating character that just yeah. appeals to me, man. Like he's definitely one of my favorite characters. Huh. Yeah, I it's true. Like overall, he doesn't have a lot of screen time, but the cumulative effect of all of the little moments that he has is pretty substantive when you put it all together. Yeah. It's 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 the sparing and strategic use of a character to drive home certain points and ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, like I, I do think that's like great storytelling, especially when you're doing something with an ensemble cast where yeah. there are just so many characters at your disposal and often uh often is the case where in in the hands of lesser writers, they don't necessarily know what to do with everyone and it just ends up people just end up being either wasted or just end up being uh you know one dimensional yeah yeah i've exactly. also seen some stories or read some stories where they had an ensemble cast and the some stories the way they do it is they they devote like a full story arc to each individual uh supporting character yeah, yeah. but then like once that character has his time in the spotlight and his arc is over then you don't really see them do anything again for the rest of the story. Yeah. <laughs> They're just background yeah. characters. And, and that's, that feels kind of like wasted potential too. So it, it it's good to see another way of, of telling a story with an ensemble cast where, yeah. you, you know, you, not everybody necessarily has to have a major story arc devoted to him or her, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's just a bunch of small moments and small scenes that are actually meaningful and they yeah. pile up and cumulatively cumulatively they end up uh with a really positive effect overall yeah yeah right oh yeah i was also going to ask you man but uh, about the black tristars the yeah. mobile suits like i haven't i don't think i've really asked you too much but but uh have there been any mobile suit designs or mecha designs that have stood out to you or that you particularly enjoyed so far um i think i'd have to say that my favorite uh design would have to be the red comet okay Char. okay like, Char's mobile suit the the red zaku with the yeah. special fin yeah like i think it looks cool it's it's probably the most stylish one out of all of them um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i guess i guess this is the part that's a little revealing about me in the sense that <laughs> uh that I would uh align myself with the fanboys that that love char <laughs> <laughs> uh maybe it just shows how how basic or <laughs> how pedestrian I am in my tastes but no no I mean the the zaku too is one of the most iconic designs in all of Gundam. So the Char custom version of it is, it's totally understandable why that one would be appealing to you because yeah. it is one of the best. Yeah. But I will say that the Black Tri-Stars, just the thing that makes it stick out in this book is since it's a black and white book, mm-hmm. or since large portions of it are black and white, when you see them in their units coming out, 
um, because they're in the primarily in the color that they were intended to be, it really pops, you know? Yeah. 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 I really like, like how they look in this manga. Yeah. Um, Their mobile suit is probably one of my favorite designs too. I, I like the dome. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of a uh, shockwave a little bit. Their their little headpiece. Because of the one eye. Yeah. The, the <laughs> mono eye. Yeah. 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 That's kind of an iconic uh, Zeon design, I think, because the Zaku's have the mono eye as well. Yeah. I, I believe that uh, it was designed that way because Tomino, the director of First Gundam, he he didn't do the mecha designs himself entirely i mean he was definitely involved in designing some and i i think he he did design a couple throughout the series but the zaku itself uh was designed by kunio okawara who i believe gets a credit on the cover of these manga volumes as well Mm. but i i believe that uh when okawara was doing the initial designs tomino's instruction to him for the zaku was to give it one eye Oh, like that was the thing that he wanted in the Zaku because I believe it's because there's just the sense of alienness to seeing something with one eye, right? Like you when yeah, you yeah. you see the Zaku, it it just looks like something that's threatening and alien and foreign. Yeah, it's not it's not a friendly looking suit, you know. Like it you isn't. can look at you can look at something like uh, the Federation suits and they look kind of friendly, like the they're heroic looking. I, I feel like the the gun cannon uh kai's mobile suit the one that has the two cannons one on each shoulder like i feel like when you look at that one it just looks like a toy (laughs) yeah is that the one with the tank treads instead of legs uh that one's the gun tank but that one looks like a toy too that one that one just looks silly to me (laughs) yeah like anytime i see a a tank that has the upper torso of a robot it just looks funny (laughs) it always just makes me think how practical is that really <laughs> you know yeah it's yeah but i'm looking at this one uh scene where they're fighting tachi and i do like how that uh that unit looks cuz mm-hmm. it's the one that kind of has that ant eater head the the puckered mouth mhm mhm and uh i think that helmet has kind of a cool look yeah i think he was using an older zaku model yeah, that's from what I remember of that scene. The way that they described it was t- the 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 stuff that Tachi brought with him. It wasn't much, but it was all outdated stuff. Yeah, because but, the brass wasn't willing to give him anything. Yeah, too modern. But you know, they were gonna take what they had and they were gonna use it to to really to to whatever full effect that they could to really mess them up. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day. They had their hate to power them. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what it was. Exactly, exactly. Reminds me of that Punisher 2099 panel. <laughs> I don't hate? need a jetpack. All I need is hate. Yeah. He jumps out of a. He jumps off this flying ship. <laughs> yeah. Even though in real life, pretty sure, hate won't stop him from being crushed like a bug when he lands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll just be a bloody smear of blood. Yeah, it re- <laughs> it reminds me of this other scene where um, I was just talking about it earlier today with a buddy of mine. It was from this movie called The Other Guys, and mm-hmm. it was a scene where Samuel L. Jackson and Dwayne the Rock Johnson were 
they're supposed to be these like super cops and uh the scene is them they're they're at the top of this like you know like not a skyscraper but like a building they're on top of this building and you know they're just going around and they're just beating people up and you know they're just being these super cops and they make it to the top of the building and they see like guys driving off in the distance and they do that thing where in action movies where the guys like give each other a look and they go you gotta you want to go for it yeah and then they like just jump from the roof (laughs) but the funny thing is they jump from the roof and then they just like proceed to fall and land and the next thing you see is you're at their funeral (laughs) really yeah and they were just like they just thought they could just do that and that nothing would happen (laughs) they like believed in their hype so much uh as as these super duper cops that they thought that they could just jump from a building (laughs) and nothing would happen to them is that the end of the movie no 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 they they were like side characters in the movie but okay that was the end of their scene in the movie. So it was it was a it was a joke. Yeah, it was a joke. <laughs> Dude, that's pretty funny. Uh, it I kind of want to watch this movie, man. <laughs> to be honest, the movie itself, I didn't think the movie was especially great, but I thought that particular scene was one of the funnier scenes in the movie, if not the funniest scene in the movie. Right, I'll, I'll look that scene up on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> it's it always it it's always good for a chuckle. <laughs> You want to move on to the next section? Sure, sure. In section five, uh, White Mace arrives at Jaburo, and everyone is ecstatic to be with the Federation. Amuro has been deeply affected by the recent deaths and is lost in thought. The ragtag force finally comes under the wing of the adults and the official Federation military infrastructure. We see various uh, interactions from the crew members that highlight the change in status quo for White Mace. The crew are immediately condescended to and ordered around without any consideration for who they are or their experiences and accomplishments thus far. Amro is taken in by the Federation scientists and the doctors who poke and prod him. Behind closed doors, we see that the only interest they have in Amro is in his practical use as a weapon. Uh, the kids are told that they will have to leave White Base, and although they are civilians and children, this separation is bittersweet because many have come to consider the ship and the crew their home. Junior grade Lieutenant Bright is spoken to by the military leadership and they inform him that he will maintain his leadership of Whiteface and that he will receive a promotion that is commensurate with his new leadership position. As these talks are happening, we see that Xeon is carpet bombing areas, potentially getting closer to Jabara. During one of the doctor's tests, Amro remembers all of the various painful moments of his recent past. He remembers the death death of Miss Matilda and Ryu, as well as the last interaction he had with his mother, and he suffers emotional traumatic episodes. Yeah, yeah this was a chapter that, again, it it's it feels like a necessary kind of piece of storytelling when you when you give characters a chance to breathe and reflect on the traumatic experiences that they've just had. Yeah. I feel like these are the scenes that are these are the kinds of parts of a story that are rife with character development when you get to see how they deal with the aftermath of these horrible events. And yet this chapter in particular also throws in some more plot developments. Like it's interesting to see 
like you said, the Federation scientists end up doing not, a, I don't know if you would call them experiments, but they, they're definitely like doing all these tests on Amaro and yeah. trying to figure out what it is about him being a new type and like what even is a new type and, and what makes him special and if they can somehow weaponize that even more yeah. in in their favor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um it it's certainly not a moment where they view him as you know, the hero or as someone to be respected or honored for uh, what he's done to save them thus far, right? Mm-hmm. As much as it is their fascination with whatever budding powers he's beginning to exhibit. And again, just this idea of what what can we... They, they, they just view him as an asset, essentially. Yeah. You know? It's it's pretty. I, I do think this is another just one of those scenes of commentary that they put in where, uh, again, once 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 White Base gets back to the Federation, something that they've been trying to do this whole time, <clears throat> and it's supposed to be this moment of joy because, I guess instinctually, there's this sense that once we get back to the leadership they'll be able to give us give us guidance, right? And <laughs> they'll be able to help us out of this. But all they do is either condescend to them or mock them or just use them, you know? Like, it. there's nothing more telling than just how they treat Amaro as just this thing that they're just going to study, um, mm-hmm. you know, without any care for all at all for like his well-being or yeah Mm -hmm. like towards the end when uh when he begins to have these episodes where he has these flashbacks these memories like maybe they cut that scene out for you know for expediency or whatever but realistically speaking if someone's a soldier is suffering, uh, you know, something like PTSD or something. You you'd think that they would address that, right? Yeah. But all they really care about is, well, what does this mean for his like power levels or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it's it, it it does it just feels like another scene that just points to the idea of just how cold and unfeeling uh, the people at the top are. Yeah. The scene where he remembers those traumatic moments. There was something about the artwork that I was particularly impressed by, like the the mood that Yasuhiko was able to evoke through his drawings for that scene. You know, it's kind of like the obligatory dream sequence in any kind of long form story that you see. But yeah, this was well done because it just felt like those moments had a lot of impact and the way that they were drawn. Yeah. Like even in, in the dream, they weren't necessarily completely reflective of the actual real event. Like it's just how he's, or 
either how he's remembering them or maybe it's like his subconscious mind kind of coloring those memories in a way to to cause him even more harm or pain yeah there, there was just something about the artwork there that that really jumped out at me and i thought it was really yeah. well executed yeah it's they're they're super good looking pages and the the thing that jumps out at me is they're like two page spreads so they're big you know yeah you know and stuff and, like that stands out because we haven't seen too many two page spreads in this comic exactly it's it's like four pages total of just uh a full pre- full page artwork you know mm-hmm. or yeah i guess it's two two page spreads but and and they're just back to back it's a lot to take in you know but it's it's there's so much going on that you can't help but take a little extra care and time to absorb all of the the finer details of it you know yeah yeah actually yeah. speaking about the artwork some of those color pages where white base is floating or flying above uh south america and you just see these landscapes in watercolor it's it was pretty awe-inspiring man yeah like some of those pages made me like drop my jaw and just stop what the I color was doing. pages are awesome yeah they just stopped me in my tracks and i just had to examine them you know like it's yeah. really beautiful work his coloring is great yeah it but i will say one thing about uh seeing this dream sequence where Amaro is, uh, you know, reminiscing about these tragedies. It, it did make me think of that Punisher scene from uh, Round Robin. <laughs> <laughs> See, what Amaro needed to do was narrate all those events, and then those doctors would be like, oh, so that's why he's such a good pilot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amaro should have been like, it was a beautiful day in the park. <laughs> Uh, I was with my family. <laughs> uh, we were minding our own business. <laughs> we got oh, gunned down. Now it's only up to me to kill the scum. I have to kill all the scum. <laughs> <laughs> then that's why they weren't treating his PTSD. How would they have known <laughs> <Exactly>. otherwise? <laughs> oh man. Side note for anyone who was wondering what we were just talking about there, you gotta <laughs> listen to our Moon Knight episode a couple episodes ago. <laughs> oh man. You wanna move on to the next section? Let's move on. Section six. The section starts off with Amaro meeting Mr. Woody. Mr. Woody is involved with retrofitting White Base, but it is revealed that he has come to that he has some connection to Miss Matilda. And in having further conversations, Amaro learns that the two of them were going to be married. At this point, Amaro instantly feels guilt over her death, communicating his remorse to Mr. Woody for having failed to save her, only to have only to have Mr. Woody respond with anger. Woody explains that Melinda's decision to behave the way that she did to to Matilda? act the way that oh sorry Matilda uh, Matilda's decision to behave the way that she did only makes him love her more and that in war there is no way to second guess your actions and that the nature of war is that lives are lost and he refuses to accept Amaro's apology. At the, at the ceremony meant to honor Whiteface 
and to officially recognize the new ranks of all of the all of its crew members we we see that the federation had a cavalier attitude towards the crew Wright is only honored with the rank of lieutenant even though he is the commanding officer of white base the reason for not making him captain due being due to some meaningless technicality the final straw was Ryu Jose being posthumously awarded the rank of second lieutenant. Amro goes off in a rage because he feels that the Federation offered him uh, because he feels that what the offer what the Federation offered him for his life was as an insincere pittance for the great man that Ryu Jose was. He proceeds to cuss out the leadership only to enter into a physical altercation where the commanding officer orders Amuro to stand still uh, while he slaps him. Otherwise, he will face further com- uh, consequences. Amuro takes his slap begrudgingly. Frau shows up in Amuro's home to check on him, and she sees the drugs he's been given by the Federation doctors, and she grows suspicious. She tosses out the drugs and informs him that if he chooses not to, Amuro doesn't have to continue taking these tests, to which he decides... He no longer wants to he no longer wants to meet with the doctors. During the speech given by the highly decorated General Revel Rev, Revel, <laughs> who was mentioned f- uh, earlier for his spe- spectacular failure in the in the previous section, the kids escape the nursery and crash the event. There is a huge commotion as the glitz and glamour of the moment is interrupted. Everyone is mildly em- embarrassed by this. The chapter closes with Char in the middle of a jungle. He has procured these special Xeon mobile suits and has been sending them on uh, an underwater mission. It is revealed that he has some plot in mind for Jaburo that will open them up to Xeon. Mm-hmm. One thing uh, about your summary, I believe it was Frau and Sela who went into Amro's room to check on him. And, and Sela was the one who recognized the drugs and got suspicious. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. Missed that detail. Oh, Sometimes good. I just read these, you know. Uh, I just kind of hammer away at them, so certain yeah. things don't always uh stick, you know. No worries, man. Yeah. But yeah, this uh, you know, it just uh, the thing that I did like about this particular section was it was just more it it was providing more insight into that this new dynamic that exists between uh white base and the the federation like leadership you know yeah it it just it, it it's the type of thing that reminds that reminded me that of just how different their circumstances were compared to what we would typically expect from soldiers, you know, um, mm-hmm. it, it just, it just really reminded me of just what a ragtag bunch of, uh, kids these guys were. Yeah. You know, totally. And, and uh, and watching them have this entire ceremony where they're supposed to be honoring these these heroes and the best that they can do for them is say, you know, 
is 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 just kind of it's basically just lip service, you know? Yeah. Just saying yeah. Lieutenant Bright Lieutenant Junior Grade Bright only gets promoted to lieutenant even though he's going to be the active commander of this ship. That's it's unfair. It's outrageous. <laughs> How can you be on the council and not be a master? <laughs> I was going to say it's downright disrespectful. That too. That too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but again, the 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 part of it that really just ends up taking the cake is you know, Rio Jose, he's his death saved the ship you know and mm-hmm. for them to just be so nonchalant about the whole thing you know even even the rank that they give him that they reward him in his death is it's just like such a nothing rank you know yeah yeah and there's probably a good chance that the man who was giving out these ranks didn't even realize how significant Ryu Jose was as a person yeah, and as a yeah. crewmate to the entire uh, team of White Base. You know, like he probably just saw some report. Oh, this guy was killed in action. Whatever. And yet we know, and and the White Base crew knows that Ryu Jose's death meant probably a lot more than that because, yeah. like you said, he really sacrificed himself to ultimately save the ship yeah yeah and then when amuro loses his crap and you know gets that was a good moment too yeah that was that was uh i guess i would have said if he hadn't gotten to a fist fight with hayato earlier this would have been totally unexpected but now it it feels like it tracks you know like he's got he's got a lot of frustration bubbling under him yeah yeah and it's just Maybe it's a part of just who he is, but there's also a chance that it is his post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. getting to him, you know? But, yeah, even in that moment where... I I don't even know who that guy's name was. This, you know... He's just the guy giving out the ranks. Yeah, this... Promotions. This, you know, company man, whatever he is. He's just over here, like berating Amaro and 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 telling him it's and basically saying to him you know I you know we there's a chain of command here you're not supposed to talk back to me S- stand still and let me slap you otherwise you know I'll have you arrested yeah. it's just it, <laughs> what it's, is that it's just totally indicative of like the general overall attitude of a lot of these uh people in leadership positions there you know mhm and it just feels like the other thing I want to add is the way that he draws uh, uh, these characters when when he wants to communicate just how slimy and scummy and weaselly they are, he mm-hmm. he makes them kind of a caricature, but it totally it totally makes sense. You know, it it hits home just how spineless this guy is the way that uh yaz draws him you know yeah he really looks like somebody you can't respect yeah just 
feels like a butt kisser who is who's just made his way up the ranks by kissing as much butt as possible. <laughs> and that's the only reason that he's in this position that that he's in, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and for this kind of a guy to be the one to be so dismissive about your friend who sacrificed his life to save all of you, I'd be pissed too. Royally yeah. pissed. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely man absolutely yeah. it's yeah this this whole outburst i feel like it gives us a great sense of where amro's head is at and it also again feels like an example of gundam or specifically tomino and yasuhiko feels like it's them repudiating these wartime bureaucrats yeah. these guys who are just so far behind the front lines like you saw how fortified this base was. It, it's not an easy place to get to. It's underground. It's supposed to be able to withstand, uh, you know, all this carpet bombing. Uh, it the people who are in this base have this sense of security because they're in this extremely fortified position, yeah. telling or giving out commands for the the soldiers who are actually engaged in in combat. But it it really the the scene really does feel like they're repudiating these guys and just uh, pointing out again this idea that adults or people in charge or authority figures ruin everything and it's up to the youth to craft a brighter future even when they can hardly believe it exists. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it it just makes it hard not to be mad at uh, like i get it, it I, well i guess you know what i guess that's a sign of good fiction is its ability to make me believe or agree with the idea that there are these kinds of uh low-level bureaucrats that have an inflated sense of their personal importance and power who totally man who shouldn't be doing uh, who shouldn't be in the positions they are to, uh, you know, to 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 berate people mm-hmm. who are who sacrifice infinitely more than they do, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, Ugh. well I, I was jump- also touched by the scene uh, between Amaro and Woody. Actually, I, I wanted to mention that, too, uh, because that scene when Amuro uh, has that conversation with him and he's he's racked with guilt because of Matilda's death. And uh-huh, uh-huh. he talks to Woody, asks for forgiveness because he thinks that it was his own inexperience as a soldier, as a pilot yeah. that led to her death. Yeah. But the way Woody shoots that down and his response to him is... I found that pretty inspirational, man. Like that, that was a moment where it felt like what Woody said to him actually is contributing to Amro's character growth. Yeah. You know, like it, like it's rare when you see a scene where what one character tells another character actually changes that other character who's being told that information. Well, it's, the other thing is, this was the scene that I mentioned earlier, where mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. when Amuro was losing it with the rest of uh with with the rest of the crew or the cadets. I, I don't know what their official term is, but um in that scene what he was telling him was, you know, listen what he was saying was that this is just war, this is uh and no one should be taking you know, taking the blame upon themselves. And here we have this moment again where uh that that mirrors that scene earlier, but now it's Amaro who feels He ain't take his own advice, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? He feels that he's responsible for Matilda's death. And I guess there's something self-indulgent to that idea where he had in a that moment complex. of pain, in that moment of pain, he's the only one that, yeah, yeah. he's he's the one that's responsible for it, right? Mm-hmm. And to have Woody like tell him what he was telling the other guys, the thing that's interesting about that, or the portray- the portrayal of that, is that. It really feels like when Woody says it, he believes it, he means it, you know. Whereas when yeah. Amuro says it, it's yeah. I I we we had that conversation earlier. Like it it was a little hard to tell whether this was something he actually believed or whether it was just something that he was trying to tell himself to believe, you know. That, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, but with Woody, it definitely feels like he genuinely believes that. Yeah. Like this, Woody is a pretty cool and interesting character to introduce into into the mix, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's, like, one of the few adult kind of figures. Like, he and Matilda were... He's not a jerk. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's, like, one of the few adults that you actually kind of respect and that yeah. you view as an authority figure as an adult. Yeah, like he he was genuinely trying to express his care for Amuro in that scene. He Yeah, I mean like anybody else could have easily held it against Amuro. I mean that was his his fiance who died, but he ends up Woody ends up not only absolving Amuro of her death, but you know telling him why he should continue living you know and and like for woody what he said about how uh matilda died for the sake of protecting white base that's the whole reason that's that's going to become like the reason why woody is going to keep on living you know he's going to devote himself to protecting white base and making sure that the ship can carry out her mission because that's the ship that his fiance died for yeah it's a it's a dramatic it's powerfully dramatic, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's a it's a big, powerful, dramatic moment for sure. Yeah. It's a, yeah, really, really good story beat. Yeah. And then like the yeah, like this whole chapter felt like there was a lot of a lot of good stuff. Like that again, that scene where uh, Sela and Frau are are checking in on Amro, and Sela sees the drugs that the doctors have been giving Amro. Like again. Kind of like what we were saying about Kai earlier, but it's just another small scene where we see like she knows stuff that other characters just are ignorant of, you know, like she she can read the label and be like, hey, you shouldn't take this. Uh-huh. Right. You know? <laughs> like like Amra was just doing whatever he was told. And and yet 
here she is, you know, giving him this ad- advice like she's just the smartest person in the room or something. Yeah. 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 Then you there's also that scene with the with the three little orphans, Kika, Cats and Lets. Like it feels like they're they're always around and then all of a sudden they they just come to like a big amount of uh they get they get thrust into prominence in this volume of of stories. Yeah. You you see them more. You definitely see them more in this in volume 4 than you do in previous volumes. Like, speaking of one-dimensional characters, it, it did feel like in the previous volumes they were just kind of there just to be, like, set dressing, you know? Yeah, just comic to remind relief. Us, yeah, that, to remind us that, hey, there are kids uh, among the uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the survivors, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then to end the chapter with Shar... Like it's been a while since we've seen him, uh-huh, uh-huh. so it kind of feels like when we finally do see him again, it's a big moment. Like it definitely, as a reader, it it filled me with a sense of anticipation for what to come next. And those are those are the good kind of cliffhangers, you know. Like I think we we've talked about cliffhangers before about how like sometimes there's really dumb ways to do cliffhangers, especially when you do something in a superhero comic, for example, where you throw the hero out the window and that's the cliffhanger at the end of the issue. Like, that that kind of stuff never flies. Mm. So when you have a cliffhanger that ends with this emotional beat, like this menacing beat, that yeah. that's something that absolutely works for me because then it just fills you with anticipation for the next, the next uh, piece of action, you know? Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There isn't this sense of. I mean, I guess there's always going to be a sense of artificial stakes being raised, but it's not artificial in the sense that, oh, this guy is going to die, or like is in this impossible situation where he's going to die. How is he going to get out of it? Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. the, the, the beat here is more, it's. Yeah, the cliffhanger is more of an emotional one, right? It's the revelation that, oh, he's back in the fold. What's he going to do next? What's he going to do now, right? Cause yeah, especially because Char so far feels like he's the most cunning Zeon that we've we've seen. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ramba Rao and Hamon were definitely good soldiers, but there's just something more, I guess, sinister and also... Yeah. Uh, clever about Shar because he's already proven himself here by actually finding the location of, of Jabro. He was able to track down White Base for a long time earlier in the story. Yeah. And of course, like the fact that he was able to to uh get Garma killed, like he planned that whole thing out. <laughs> like there's definitely something conniving about him that makes yeah. him a little bit more of a fearsome enemy than any of the other people that the white base has fought so far. Yeah. It it just feels like Rambal Rawl is maybe a little too dignified and honorable to be <laughs> uh 
Yeah, I mean, he's still a threat, but at the end of the day, there are certain acts that he won't commit because he's too honorable of a person to do it, right? Yeah, whereas, whereas Char got one of the got, zombies killed. <laughs> yeah, he's got zero reservations whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If he can do that to his friend, what does he do to his enemies? <laughs> Uh, ready to move on to the next section i am ready so in section seven char has reached out to native peoples on earth in his plot to attack jaburo by promising them a chance at revenge against the federation he has found willing allies with knowledge that will strike at the heart of jaburo the federation continues to make upgrades but while these changes are being made they are left momentarily vulnerable the enemy Zakus, led by Shar, make their way through an underground cavern to the heart of Jaburo. Romero, Romero Garcia, is that his name? Or is it Romero? Uh, I forget his first name, but Garcia is definitely yeah. his last name. <clears throat> so Garcia of the Xeon forces has been made aware of Shar's movements and moves swiftly to take advantage of the opening that Shar will provide him. He rallies the might of his forces in preparation for the big moment. The children of White Base are being held in the nursery, but they escape and decide to run to the caverns underneath Jaburo. While down there, they come across the small Zaku force that has been sent by Shar to infiltrate Jaburo. They learn of the plot to plant bombs on all of the Federation mobile, mobile suits, but before they can warn anyone, they are discovered and captured. So, what do you think of this chapter? It's... It's a pretty straightforward action piece that moves the story along in a in a fairly quick way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I feel like the previous sections building up to this were more character oriented and focused on uh, just the development of of their individual personalities and story arcs, mm-hmm. but this one definitely ties into the larger uh, uh, overall story that's happening, right? So yeah. they introduced or reintroduced Shar in that last chapter. And instead of, you know, kind of milking it and doing the slow burn of, uh, you know, sh- showing Shar moving the pieces along, they just jump right into it, you know, as he makes whatever moves he's going to make. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because up to this point we hadn't seen Char in a while, right? Mm-hmm. And it just feels like that time away was very deliberately just meant to prime the pump for his return. And now that we're here where his return is at, we we just hit the wall running in these last few sections with him, you know? Yeah. Like, we see a bunch of him. Um, The stuff with the three kids, that's... It was pretty... funny stuff. Like, I feel like in... Even though this is a serious subject matter about war, uh, in the next following sections with the kids, and even though these kids are in some pretty serious danger, it's still treated in a way that's 
kind of cartoony. It's cartoony danger, you know? Yeah. It doesn't get super dark about it. Yeah, yeah. It it even kind of makes it, I guess, funny on some level, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Just the kids the are w- funny. They're they're just cute little kids. They yeah. they look funny. It. I, the the closest thing that I can compare it to is something like Home Alone or something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like it 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 verges on Home Alone territory when the kids get tied up and kidnapped and like. Let, let's be realistic. In any given warlike situation, if kids were found out, I'm pretty sure they'd be dead. <laughs> Straight up. Yeah. All right, but yeah, you know, but. The way that they do it for this story, it's it's understandable. You know, I, I don't... It's not the sort of thing that makes me go, why didn't they kill these kids? <laughs> you know? This isn't realistic at all. Yeah. They should have just clubbed them over the head with the butt of their guns until it was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> You're brutal, Albert. Uh, I go to a lot of dark places. <laughs> uh but yeah um there uh, there was one moment that i didn't really mention where you kind of have the kids playing around in the nursery and it's it's a moment where they i guess it's a character building moment for the kids where they talk about the adults and uh you know just the circumstances they're in and how they don't believe the adults and that's part of the reason why they run away, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, Are you talking about the scene where they're talking with one of the other kids who grew up at the nursery? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, I forget exactly, but I th- I think what the kid was saying was that make some kind of comment about how, if he just stays here, like every couple of weeks, he gets to see his mom or something. And then it reminds Kika that her mom is dead. Yeah. 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 And it's upsetting, obviously. Yeah. And the kid's just... Well, he's just kind of a smug little jerk. Yeah. Dumb yeah. kid. <laughs> Why couldn't those soldiers have clubbed his head in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... But... Yeah, at, at at one point in the story, uh, they're all crying together and just, you know, the floodgates are are just opened up to them as they. It, it's almost like the reality of the situation just finally hits all of them, you know, and they're just all cl- crying for their parents, even though moments earlier they were just playing around and having fun and just being kids. Yeah, you know, it's it's. It's played for laughs and it's kind of cartoony and over the top, but at the same time, the the emotional content of it—if you really step back and just look at it—it's real, you know. Yeah, especially, it's especially genuinely the, sad. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. The other thing uh, I wanted to mention, since it's kind of been this recurring theme, is uh, Garcia, because he's like one of the Zeon generals or something of their Earth forces, and. And uh, he, he's he's a total clown. He is. He's a caricature of a villain. Yeah. Yeah, he's that villain that wants to gain glory by beating up the enemy forces, but he's far too incompetent, so much so that 
you just know that when he tries, he's just gonna get messed up. And yeah, uh, he his whole thing where he's trying to compete against Char and and doesn't want Char to get the glory. It it's it's such it's petty so petty. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the other thing is just in terms of in terms of his stature and firepower he's in a position where he's got so many more forces available to him compared to Shar, you know? Yeah, like if he were if he were competent or if Shar had his his armaments and forces imagine yeah. what could have been done. Exactly, exactly, right? How how the how different the situation would have been just just by that very virtue. <laughs> yeah. You know? Again, so it, it just shows you that this really bad leader in this high position screws everything up for his side. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and a lot of... He's, he's a total opportunist. Just the kind of guy who, yeah. in, in the pursuit of glory, is willing to overlook very important details uh, yeah. that, that could get him killed. <laughs> he's... He's Team Rocket, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's that's how much of a character caricature of a villain he is. He's Team Rocket from Pokemon, <laughs> you know. Like even the way that they draw him, he's just such a silly dude. Yeah. Like, it it's hard for me to believe that this guy is at the head of this massive army, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you question who who decided to promote him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, moving on to Section 8. Mm-hmm. In Section 8, what we have is... What we see is that Garcia has marshaled all his forces and is prepared to make the decisive blow that will end the war for Zeon. Char's men have captured the children and tied them up. The children are left with all of the mobile units that have explosives attached to them. When the explosions go off, uh, the children will be blown up along with them. When Shar's men have gone have have gone and left the tied up children behind, the children squirm and wriggle until they are uh, able to escape, and they proceed to remove as many of the explosive devices as they can. Uh, they escape and happen to run into adults who went after uh, who run into adults who went into the caverns to find them uh, when they went missing. The kids are rescued from uh, from a runaway vehicle, and the bombs that they removed have been disposed of. Amuro and some of the crew of White Base are now alerted to the invasion, but not before Shar's forces begin their attack. The Federation is on high alert now as Garcia and his massive attack force arrives. The battle will begin soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so, this, uh, this chapter with the kids as the focus was... like It continues off... What you were saying uh, about the previous chapter, how it's it's really high stakes, but because it's the kids, there's still something kind of funny and cute about it. Yeah, yeah. It's. Do you think that's a weird uh, juxtaposition or like conflicting, conflicting images there, or does this does this scene work for you in the context of the story? I think it is weird, but. 
oddly enough, it still works, you know? It's kind mm-hmm. of what I was saying about Hayato in or in that earlier volume. The this the same thing that you were saying where um where these characters are so cartoony looking, but what they're talking about is so serious that it feels like there's almost a glitch in my brain when I'm reading <laughs> whatever it is I'm reading, where I'm trying to reconcile these two conflicting moods that they're trying to establish, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But over time, you know, I, I've i been able to... Well, I guess I've just been able to do that, to, to do just that, which is to reconcile them in order mm-hmm. in order to have my appreciation of the greater overall story that's being told. Yeah. You know, you bought into it. Yeah, exactly. Like suspend your disbelief. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now that, now that I, I guess I've figured out what the, the rules of his particular world is, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like, what about you? Do like, what do you feel about these, really cartoony scenes with these kids like even the idea that these kids one okay the the idea that the soldiers don't kill the kids on site yeah and two the like we've talked about this before this whole thing where you the villain ties them up and leaves them there to to suffer their fate because you know ties <laughs> them up and puts them on a train track or something like that yeah uh, like a real villain wouldn't do that <laughs> You know, <laughs> and then and then on top of that, to have these kids running around and to they manage to escape them, their bonds. Yeah, not and only then, do they escape their bonds, but to have enough wherewithal mm-hmm. to like disarm these bombs without blowing themselves up. Well, not disarm. Okay, to be fair, they don't disarm the bombs, but they remove the bombs without blowing themselves up, and then they. They like hot wire a vehicle, yeah. And, like recklessly <laughs> well, drive out of this place. <laughs> I think uh, Let's he's he's the boy who who uh, starts up the vehicle. I think he actually says that they left the keys inside. Is that what he said? Okay, I believe okay. so. Yeah, I think there's a line where he says it's easy when the keys are in here. I think okay, you just okay. push this pedal and then then he just loses control and they just uh, start speeding around. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I see time. it right here. I see yeah. it. Yeah, but. Even so, they're kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, ba- based on all the kids I know, that would be pretty hard to imagine. Like, it'd be hard for me to imagine a little kid in real life, uh, you know, just starting up a a car like that, or yeah. a forklift, or a tractor, or whatever construction equipment vehicle is at yeah. hand. Yeah, it's. It, uh... it, it feels like that would just end up with someone getting hurt pretty badly if it happened the bombs would have gone off right then and there (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i did like again another little scene where kai is one of the guys driving one of the cars chasing the kids and and like it it feels like it could have been a moment where sarcastic wise ass kai is just making some smart remarks but you you see him actually trying to save these kids, you know, because he has grown to care for them. And yeah. that, like little little things like that. It's it's just a good moment where 
it's it's his characterization man like he's a he's a guy with many depths and sarcasm and cynicism are pretty far up there in terms of uh his noticeable traits but he's, he's also uh, with a with a heart of gold exactly man he he wants to help the children yeah Oh. Were you gonna we say something? Really, we haven't really talked too much about Frau either, but like this whole time she's been the one who's who's like broken her back, chasing these kids everywhere and trying to take care of them. Yeah. It's it it's it's a pretty funny comedic bit where the kids just end up showing up in in random places and she's always just kind of in hot pursuit of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All these couple steps behind. Yeah. It it does make me uh, remember how earlier on in the story, like from the very first chapter of the story, when we see her going to Amro's house for the first time, she always had these motherly qualities. Yeah. She was the one who was trying to remind Amro to take care of himself, to eat and yeah. do all those things. And then once they all got on white base, she was still kind of mothering him and being sort of that nurturing figure that Amro doesn't really have. It seems like because she's just this natural, naturally a motherly kind of figure, the kids just automatically gravitate towards her and, and she automatically keeps an eye out for them. Like there's just this this bond between between them. Yeah. We want to move on to the next section. Let us move on. All right. So in section section nine, Garcia makes his full frontal attack while Almero seeks out a suit to join the fray. With enough time and warning, the Federation heads have come up with a trap and caught Garcia off guard. Garcia and his forces are buried under tons of debris while the Federation picks off Debris. The Debris. Debris. You're De- right. This is the first time I've ever heard you pronounce it debris. <laughs> what the heck, Albert? You're reading off your own notes and and new. You- Pronounced the brie correctly. Uh, see, that's how you can tell that I'm getting tired because <laughs> I, I missed an opportunity. <laughs> oh man, uh, are buried under tons of debris while the Federation picks off the remnants. Even though Garcia has been defeated, Char is still a threat. As he cuts a swath through the Federation, he is at last confronted by Amaro, and they have their long-awaited showdown. They fight, and Shar almost defeats Amaro before he is saved by Mr. Woody. Amaro uh, takes the opportunity to severely damage Shar Zaku, forcing him to escape. On his way out, Shar comes face-to-face with his sister, Sela, and they have a brief exchange before before he escapes. Sela pleads with him, wondering why he would serve Zeon. His only response to her is a threat and a warning, letting her know that if she wants to live, that she won't return white base. And then he disappears, leaving Sela alone and conflicted. That's a pretty dramatic note to end on. It is, man. It is. There's, yeah, it's, it's, this is kind of the long-awaited rematch between uh, Shar and Amaro, right? Mm-hmm. So... We we get this battle where they they go at it, and at first, Shar really does have the upper hand. But Mr. Woody shows up in uh, a vessel uh, in a ship, and 
you know, it's like you were saying earlier, he has committed himself to saving white base as well as all of their inhabitants. His momentary distraction, it stopped Shar from dealing the, the final killing blow. But in that moment, Shar almost takes out his anger on Mr. Woody and almost kills him on that spot. And that's that's sort of the moment that motivates Amaro to step up his game, you know? It's Didn't he kill Woody? Did Woody die? I I thought he saved him. Let me let me take a look at that again. Well, if he did die, that's that would suck. Huh. I don't know. It's it's not entirely clear. Is it? I thought he was killed. I thought Shar kills him. I don't think he kills him. Cuz Yeah, there's a scene here where he's like I won't let you lay one finger on this ship that Matilda died for. And then uh, you see uh, Char's uh, Zaku just kind of emitting all this steam. And then it goes, are you kidding me? Oh, wait, he smashes something. I guess he smashes the ship. Okay. <laughs> there you go, Albert. <laughs> well, but that's the thing. I didn't know what... Okay, I, w- I really didn't know what I was looking at in that moment. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> it's, wow. it's... Yeah. Okay, I guess he did die. Well, I mean... Huh. Okay, I guess he did die. Huh. So, Amaro comes up, and he... Uh, that's that's when he slices him with uh, his laser sword, cuts the arm off, and then Char, you know, he does his villain thing and just kind of goes and escapes. That scene with him and Sela was pretty dramatic. That's a dramatic cliffhanger right there. Yeah. The emotional cliffhanger. Again, so well done. Yeah. And, you know, looking at that scene, it's it, it doesn't feel like there's a lot being said. It's it's a very brief exchange between the two. But what is said is pretty powerful stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's said with the impact and the precision of a dagger to the heart. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly sets things up in your imagination as to, like, what was it that happened between the two of them that they're no longer together? And why are they on opposite sides like this? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. And, well, I guess in retrospect, taking into consideration that this is what ends up happening to Woody. Uh, there is a sort of closure there, knowing that Woody and Matilda are united guess, in death. Yeah. I, like I, I, I couldn't find the words for it, but I, I guess there's no other way to put it. Right. Yeah. That uh, in life, they both sacrificed themselves for the same singular purpose. And in death, they would, I, I guess they they have that that unifying thread, right? Mm-hmm. For whatever mm-hmm. that's worth. But yeah, one of the things. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. That, I don't want to cut you off. No, I I really didn't have anything. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say that one of the things that I was thinking about during this volume was the how 
there are several of these deaths of named characters because uh-huh. you know we we had Ryu, Matilda, Hamon, and Woody, and I, I guess Garcia, but that dude's a clown, so who cares? <laughs> but <laughs> like one of the things that kind of stands out is the contrast between how Hamon handles Rambaral's death and how Woody handles Matilda's death. And I don't know if it was I don't know if it was intended to be a point of contrast or comparison, but it it did intrigue me to see how these different characters react to the death of their lovers cuz we we mentioned how Hamon when she's fighting Amron and basically has the upper hand on him, she She's lecturing him basically, or or just yelling at him, and says that line about how he's only been alive for 15 years and has no idea of the rich, full life that she had with Ramba. And there's just all this, you know, bitterness or and rage against him. And even though she did say that she liked him, she wasn't gonna let that stop her from killing him <laughs> because yeah. he was responsible for the death of her lover whereas woody that conversation he had with amro when he he tells amro that he'll devote his his energy and his life to preserving white base in honor of matilda like that one that moment i i see it as um a big moment in helping amro find growth and maturity as as a person Mm. and and it was an inspirational an inspirational moment yeah. So yeah, that was just again. I don't know if that was anything where the creators were thinking, let's let's portray these two uh, contrasting couples. But um, yeah, just reading it through this time around, that was just one of the thoughts that that came to mind. Yeah. Yeah, man. I could I could kind of see that there. It does feel like a lot of the relationship dynamics uh, in this in this particular volume are are mirroring other relationships right like mm-hmm. it, it just in terms of their placement it it does feel like a lot of it you can't help but compare them to one another because they're so similar but different in other ways you know mhm exactly yeah. Did you have any thoughts on the cliffhanger? Uh, I mean, like you, I'd, I'd say that it's it's a pretty powerful beat to end on. Uh, you know, to have these two pretty prominent characters face off against each other. And, you know, not much is said, but just enough is put there to let you know what the stakes are and just to let you know that you know if someone tells you hey uh, basically what Shar was saying to Salo was if you ever if you go back the next time i see you i will kill you mm-hmm. you know regardless of whether you're there or not like i won't hesitate to kill you that's that's a pretty menacing threat to to make you know yeah, especially to one's sister. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it, it's it's a good way to uh, establish what the stakes are for whatever the 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 volumes to come. 
are gonna be. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm 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 pretty curious to see uh what that ends up looking like. And yeah. and just to to learn whatever their their secret history with one another is. I'm looking forward to you finding out, man. I'm excited for you, man. Nice, nice. It's going to be good. Nice. You got uh, any other thoughts? Nope, I think we were able to cover all of my thoughts in the course of our uh, chapter discussions. So that, yeah, that works out. What about you, man? Any final thoughts? This was a fun read, you know? Like, I think in the previous volumes, I I had mentioned uh, that I didn't really know how this was going to be a series that took up 12 volumes. Uh, But, Mm -hmm. you know, as as the complexities are are rolling out as they are rolling out the complexities i'm seeing it and it's you know it's just a treat to watch them build this world and uh to slowly invest myself in in all the the different story bits that they're rolling out for me you know yeah absolutely man yeah so yeah, it's it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah, glad to hear it. All right. So next week for our our next episode, we're going to cover something a little different than our usual comics discussion. Should we uh tell the people what they're going to expect? I think so. Why not? I mean, it'll I I I figure it'll do more to entice them to come back. <laughs> so, you know? Yeah, mystery is overrated, isn't beforehand. it? Say that again? Mystery is overrated. I certainly think so. Yeah, no surprises here. So we'll just tell you guys what we're going to be reading and discussing for next week. But next week, we're going to be talking about a biography, a prose biography called True Believer. The Rise and Fall of Stanley by Abraham Riesman. This was a book that recently was published in paperback. The, uh, the hardcover came out a little over a year ago, but I believe the paperback edition was just released um, within the last month or two. So it's it's a good time to revisit this book and talk about Stanley, one of the most significant figures in modern pop culture yeah well if uh you have any questions about you know what we discussed here today on today's episode or if you have any comments feel free to hit us up on between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or uh you know follow us on our instagram and message us uh dm us and let us know what your opinions are um yeah don't forget to share and like and rate our podcast on whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on we really appreciate that Mm -hmm. thanks for listening everybody we'll catch you next time see ya signing out